From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, the place where you get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, without all that hysterical nonsense you find everywhere else. I'm Isaac Sol, your host, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about Shireen Abu Akla, the Palestinian-American journalist who was killed in the West Bank back in May. It's a pretty interesting, controversial story. As always, though, before we jump in, I want to start off with some quick hits. First up, United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced he was resigning today, but plans to remain as Prime Minister until a successor is named. Number two, WNBA star Brittany Griner pleaded guilty to drug possession charges in Russia today. Number three, the Highland Park gunman confessed to the shooting and said he considered another attack in Madison, Wisconsin. Number four, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone said he will testify in a closed session before the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. Number five, the FDA temporarily suspended its new rule to ban Juul from selling its signature vaping products while the regulation is under review. All right, that is it for our quick hits today, which brings us to our main topic, Shireen Abu Akla. The Palestinian-American journalist was killed on May 11, 2022, as Israeli soldiers conducted a raid in the West Bank city of Jenin. The raid's purpose was to arrest a member of the militant group Hamas, which had claimed responsibility for an attack against Israelis. Jenin has been the center of the Israeli military's focus since a wave of violence began in the West Bank in March. The area is also home to a holy site where Muslim and Jewish worshippers have recently come to blows. Abu Akla wrote for Al Jazeera, where she was a household name in the Arab world and a well-known reporter in America for her coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Many eulogized her as the voice of Palestinian suffering upon her death. In the immediate aftermath of the killing, Israel attempted to pin the blame on Palestinian gunmen by releasing a video of them shooting indiscriminately inside Janine. But footage that was released in response showed Abu Akla was not killed in the area that the firing took place. In the weeks after her death, the Palestinian Authority said an in the weeks after her death, the Palestinian Authority said an investigation concluded Abu Akla was intentionally targeted and killed by Israeli soldiers. Then last month, the United Nations Human Rights Office said it had determined Abu Akla was killed by Israeli military and not by shooting from Palestinians. The UN investigator said she was clearly identifiable as a journalist with a helmet and blue press flak jacket on and had been standing among other reporters when she was killed. On Monday, the U.S. State Department said gunfire from Israeli military positions was likely responsible for her death, though they added that there was no evidence the killing was deliberate. They also said the bullet was so badly damaged that a conclusive forensic audit could not be completed. The State Department said in a statement that the USSC found no reason to believe that this was intentional, but rather the result of tragic circumstances during an IDF-led military operation against factions of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Abu Akla's death has sparked outrage across the Arab world and divided commentators here in America. 
The United States claim that the killing was unintentional and could not be confirmed forensically also caused anger, as many Palestinians viewed it as a sign no charges would be brought against any Israeli soldier. The conclusions, quote, provided the occupying state with a safe way of evading responsibility for killing Abu Akhla using flimsy and feeble pretext, the Palestinian Authority's Ministry for Foreign Affairs said. The U.S. assessment came just before President Biden visits Israel and the West Bank this week for the first time as president. He is not expected to make any major policy statements on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Today, we're going to examine some of the perspectives about the killing, and then I'll offer my take. Because this story does not fall into the typical left-right dichotomy, and because it is an international piece, we're going to experiment with a slightly different format than usual. So, first up, we're going to start with a section we're calling On the One Hand. Many note that several investigations now incriminate Israeli forces, yet they are still avoiding responsibility. Others say Abu Akhla was killed intentionally and that the U.S. has only muddied the waters. Some argue that Israel should invite a full accounting of what happened for its own good. In the Palestinian chronicle, Iqbal Jasset accused America of whitewashing Shireen Abu Akhla's death. It was a silly and stupid move to hand over the bullet that killed Shireen Abu Akhla to the Americans, is the view of many Palestinians who have criticized the Palestinian Authority for doing so, Jasset wrote. None are surprised, therefore, to find the U.S. investigators who strangely opted to remain anonymous have arrived at a vague conclusion, letting the Israeli killers off the hook. Exactly what many feared when it was discovered that PA leader Mahmoud Abbas buckled under U.S. pressure to gift Israel by passing the bullet over the apartheid's regime's funder, protector, and military supplier. Despite being vehemently opposed to Israel laying hands on the bullet, the PA yet again is succumbed to American blackmail. In so doing, it has shot itself in the foot and dangerously undermined the overriding need to hold Israel accountable. It is utterly foolish and naive for the PA to have believed that granting America the right to act as judge, jury, and prosecutor would result in a fair and impartial probe, Jossett said, and to have proceeded without the approval of Abu Akhla's family is unforgivable. In any event, the UN Human Rights Office said its review of the killing shows that the shots that killed Shireen Abu Akhla and injured her colleague came from Israeli forces, not Palestinian. And in contrast to the U.S. position, it claimed to have found no information suggesting that there was activity by armed Palestinians in the immediate vicinity of the journalists. And unlike the sloppy U.S. probe, the U.N. reached its determination after gathering information from the Israeli military and the Palestinian attorney general. Its staff also visited the scene where Abu Akhla was shot, spoke to witnesses and experts, and analyzed the video and other records. In the foreword, Rob Eshman said the U.S. should not be done looking into Abu Akhla's death. To their credit, the Israelis have not shut the door on prosecuting any soldier involved in the death. Yifat Tomer Yerushalmi, Israeli Army's advocate general, said she is awaiting the findings of the Army's internal investigation, which is ongoing, Eshman said. But if past is prologue, there is little chance that Israel will continue to investigate or prosecute those involved in Abu Akhla's death without external pressure. Criminal investigations against IDF soldiers accused of civilian deaths have continuously declined in recent years, according to the Israeli accountability group Yesh Din. And 2% of complaints made by Palestinians after being harmed by Israeli soldiers in 2019-2020 resulted in the prosecution of suspects. 
I wish I could somehow convey to these lovers of Israel that their response is doing the country they love no favors, he wrote. The truth needs to come to light for Israel's sake. If an investigation roots out bad actors among IDF soldiers, that's good for Israel. If a report reduces the likelihood that another journalist will die during an Israeli operation, that's good for Israel. If a full and transparent report exonerates the IDF, that's good for Israel. It's not wrong for the U.S. to continue to hold Israel to account for how thoroughly and how transparently it investigates the death of Abu Akhla, and it's certainly not anti-Semitic. What it is, is good for Israel. In Al Jazeera, Jalal al-Bukhater wrote about the hope for justice. None of us expects the Israeli forces who murdered Shireen to admit their crime or seek atonement, al-Bukhater said. None of us is naive to believe her killers, not only those who pulled the trigger, but also those who created the conditions for her assassination, will be held to account for what they did to her and the Palestinian people. But the outpouring of love and solidarity Shireen's murder triggered in Palestine still gives me hope that despite all the brutality inflicted on us by the Israeli occupation, Palestinians are moving together towards building a better future and finding freedom. As expected, Israel first lied about what happened in Jenin on the morning of May 11, 2022, and then refused to even investigate what we all know was a cold-blooded assassination of a journalist on duty, citing political complexities. We had testimonies from several Palestinian journalists and witnesses, plenty of video evidence, and lots of experts weighing in, Abu Qatar said. They all agreed that it was Israeli fire that killed Shireen. CNN even went further, and after analyzing all the available evidence, all the possible scenarios, all the bullet markings left the scene, concluded that Shireen was killed in a, quote, targeted attack by Israeli forces. But no evidence in the world was enough to stop the Israeli propaganda machine. Israel continued with its campaign to muddy the waters and gaslight Palestinians. It kept claiming that it is not possible to know what happened, that even if it was an Israeli bullet that killed Shireen, it was somehow the fault of Palestinians. Alright, so that is it for our on the one hand section, and this is on the other hand. Some argue there is still no evidence the killing was intentional, and it is not definitive an Israeli soldier was behind Abu Akhla's death. Others argue the obsession with her death is a product of anti-Semitism and contend the U.S. investigation points to lots of ambiguity about what happened. Many contend that, unlike many Arab nations, Israel is a champion of free speech and would never target a journalist. Israel's foreign minister, Yair Lapid, said Israel never targets journalists. Less than two hours after the death on May 11th of journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, I contacted Hussein al-Sheikh, the Palestinian minister responsible for cooperation with Israel. We all agree that something awful happened, I told him. I propose that we hold a joint investigation into her death. The Palestinians refused. We may never know exactly what caused her death, but the important thing is that, like 511 other journalists who were killed in recent years around the world, she died while carrying out her duties. Being a journalist in wartime is a dangerous business. I know. I was a journalist for 31 years and covered the first Lebanon war. What happened next can't be excused by the fog of war. Palestinian propaganda used Abu Akhla, accusing Israel of deliberately targeting her. She would surely have known better. If the outrageous claim that Israel targets journalists were true, why would she have worked in the region for more than 20 years? How can it be explained that still today hundreds of foreign journalists work in the same place? 
Al Jazeera, a network run by an Islamist state that is openly hostile to Israel, has permanent staff in Israel who are protected by the state the network slanders on a regular basis. Missing from the media coverage of Shireen Abu Akhla's death is the reason for the outbreak of fighting that led to it. Israel conducted anti-terror operations around the city of Jenin because terror cells that murdered innocent Israeli civilians came from there. Six days before Abu Akhla's death, three Israelis were slaughtered with axes in the city of Alad. In Newsweek, Alan Dershowitz said there were three main conclusions from the U.S. investigation. One, it was forensically impossible to ID the bullet. Two, it was, quote, likely but far from certain it came from an Israeli soldier. And three, that evidence suggests nobody targeted Abu Akhla. Neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians seem entirely satisfied with these three conclusions, and the Palestinians persist in their totally unfounded and counter-evidentiary claim that Israeli soldiers were ordered to target Shireen Abu Akhla because of her anti-Israel reporting, he wrote. They also falsely claim that this is part of a policy of Israeli targeting of unfriendly journalists. Nothing could be further from the truth. Israeli leaders assert that even if the bullet had come from an Israeli soldier, the moral and legal blame lies squarely with the Palestinian groups who initiated the encounter, first by encouraging terrorism against Israeli citizens, and second by shooting at Israeli soldiers who were engaged in a completely lawful effort to arrest murderers. Another important point is to put the killing of this one journalist in the context of the dozens of journalists who are killed each year covering military conflicts, such as those who have died in Ukraine, Dershowitz wrote. When put in this context, it becomes clear that the international focus on this one shooting is nothing less than a manifestation of international anti-Semitism against the nation-state of the Jewish people. Whenever Israel does anything wrong, questionable, or sometimes even justifiable, the international community and the media tend to focus unprecedented attention on the only nation-state of the Jewish people. By comparison, the killings of other journalists are either ignored or buried. In the Jerusalem Post, Mark Regev said the main Western press, while critical of Israel, tended to be careful not to be overly unequivocal in drawing conclusions as to the shooter. In contrast, Al Jazeera was vociferously explicit, immediately accusing Israel of, quote, blatant murder and deliberately targeting its journalists in a cold-blooded assassination. From the moment the news broke, the network was declaring Israel's criminal responsibility, either it instantly had all the facts or the specifics were unimportant when given an opportunity to point the finger, he wrote. The accusation of a willful murder is made when among the nations in the Middle East, it is Israel alone that a free and critical press thrives. Israel's famously boisterous and pugnacious media is always ready to expose misbehaving politicians, government wrongdoing, and the IDF's mistakes. This, while the practice in the PA and Al Jazeera falls into a different category. Although a PA basic law theoretically guarantees a free press, in reality, such freedom is non-existent. The media is severely constrained, critical platforms are shut down, and journalists arrested when the authorities object to their work. Reporters have been beaten while in custody. Blogger Nazar Banat ended up dead. When Abbas was angered by an Al Jazeera story, he ordered the closure of the network's Ramallah offices. The Palestinian president might have championed the deceased Abu Akhla as a martyr, but live Palestinian journalists know what may happen if they incur the wrath of the PA. For its part, Al Jazeera likes to present its reporting as hard-hitting, independent journalism, but the Qatari government-funded channel's hundreds of employees never report about matters that could embarrass their patron. Alright, that is it for On the One Hand and On the Other Hand, which brings us to my take. 
whenever I talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I feel like it's necessary to remind readers and listeners both that I'm a Jew and I spent about six months living in a yeshiva in East Jerusalem and traveling a little bit in the Middle East. I say this only to acknowledge that my own experiences probably bias me, even though in today's American Jewish culture, many of Israel's most prominent critics are actually themselves Jews. One could very easily take detours into the Israel-Palestinian conflict or the terrorist attacks Israelis have been navigating for months or the morality of the Israeli army versus Hamas or the occupation in the West Bank. Those are really big questions and they're much larger than what I want to aim to address today. There is a fundamental question at the heart of this story and it's who killed Shireen Abu Akla. The answer, to me, seems quite clear. It was an Israeli soldier. The United Nations investigation seems the most thorough, and it was rather conclusive. Despite the organization's bias against Israel, yes, it's real, its conclusion is now supported by thorough reporting, with video evidence and witness testimony laid out by the Washington Post, the New York Times, and CNN. If you are conservative, pro-Israel, or otherwise skeptical of the mainstream press, I am some of those things, those names may not be convincing, and I understand. But in this case, the reporting they did is invaluable, and it's actually quite definitive. It's worth noting that outlets like CNN, while I think they are obsessively anti-Trump in their domestic reporting now, they still do tremendous reporting abroad. I encourage you to read or watch their investigations for yourself if you haven't yet and you're interested in this story. To be crystal clear, this probably shouldn't even be controversial or contested. There is no actual counter-narrative here anymore. Israel is no longer claiming Palestinian forces killed Abu Akla, and the U.S. State Department is not seriously entertaining that idea. The U.N. and the Palestinian Authority have both said in clear language it was an Israeli soldier. Everything I've read and watched suggested this is the case. The only question is whether the killing was ordered by superiors, if the soldier who fired had intentionally targeted their shot, or if it truly was an accident born out of chaos. There needs to be a thorough investigation to discover which scenario actually took place, followed by a proportional punishment. Demanding answers from Israel in this case, as many in the press have, is not anti-Semitism. As a fellow Jew, I'm sympathetic to people like Alan Dershowitz who see anti-Jew obsession in the world, and I've certainly acquired antennas for anti-Semitism. But equally pernicious as anti-Semitism is Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiment and the knee-jerk reaction from many in the West to historically trust the word of Israeli politicians even over video evidence and eyewitness testimony provided by Arab reporters and witnesses. And while it's true that Israel is often singled out for and ridiculed as a bad actor on the global stage, it's also true that there are plenty of reasons besides anti-Semitism that Abu Akhla's story is getting a lot more attention than foreign correspondents being killed in Ukraine or other active war zones. The most obvious of those reasons is that she was famous. She was literally a household name. It's also true that her reporting had exposed Israeli wrongdoing, which makes it easier to believe that Israeli forces would want her dead. She was also American, which makes her story more important to many in the American press. And while she was in the vicinity of clashes between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian militants, she was not in a traditional active war zone. She wasn't killed with dozens of others in a bombing. She was shot in the head by an Israeli soldier while clearly identifiable as a reporter. All of these things make her story unique and make the attention it's getting well-deserved and understandable. 
All of this also demands accountability. I admire much about Israel, including its democratic norms and its press freedom. For all the horrors of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Yair Lapid is right when he notes that reporters are free to do their work in Israel in a way they are not in many other surrounding Arab nations, and it certainly allows far more press freedom than the Palestinian Authority ever has. But none of this means that a reporter's death is justified or excusable. The standard, if Israel wants to be the kind of force it claims to be, is not whether it allows reporters to report freely before they are shot in the head. It's not whether a reporter was intentionally killed. It's not even whether it can plausibly deny definitive proof because of some kind of forensic failure. It's inexcusable, even in a dangerous and chaotic situation, that a clearly marked reporter in a press flak jacket would be shot in the head by a member of the military. And in this case, there is good evidence and reason to believe this was not a dangerous or chaotic scenario. Abu Akla, a seasoned correspondent, was seen joking and conversing with colleagues moments before she was shot. The IDF was about 600 feet from her when she was killed, and it said at least one soldier was using a telescopic scope. Based on everything we know, the most likely story appears to be that a soldier or soldiers fired on journalists unprovoked from a long range. Palestinians and Israeli critics are perfectly reasonable to wonder if the killing was intentional. Real accountability means naming the soldier behind the bullet and putting them on trial. It's inconceivable that an army as organized as Israel's doesn't already have that information. Anything less is another stain on Israel and another reason for antagonism toward the forces they deploy. Alright, that is it for my take, which brings us to your questions answered. Michael in Belgrade, Serbia said, following up on the reader question about proof of citizenship and voting in Arizona from July 6, 2022, I'm curious about your take on voter ID laws. I'm aware that voter fraud is not really a problem, as you've aptly demonstrated, and I'm sure they are used to prevent people from voting. Yet in most countries I've lived in, for instance, everyone has to show ID to vote. What do you think? So, Michael, thanks for writing in. Uh, This is a complicated question. In a vacuum, I think voter ID laws are great in that they would probably inspire more confidence in our elections at a time when people seem very skeptical of election results. I also think even if you think voter and election fraud are rare, there are reasonable cases to be made, like the idea it's a simple step to stop future fraud. My biggest apprehension is just the availability of those IDs. Many Tangle readers have often expressed shock that I think this would be a problem, noting that they can't imagine functioning in society without a photo ID. But the truth is that a small percentage of Americans have no government-issued photo identification, which equates to millions of people who would struggle to vote with a national photo ID requirement. Of course, 34 states already have forms of voter ID laws. Some don't require photos, but ask for things like credit cards or bank statements as proof of ID and residency at the polls. So, if we were going to require government-issued photo identification, I would only support such a bill if it also provided free government IDs to every citizen. The most common photo ID is driver's license, and relying on your electorate obtaining these to vote is impractical, inapplicable, and generally classist. Simply put, I have no objection to the concept, and in fact, I can see the merit of it, But there shouldn't be additional barriers like spending an entire workday at the DMV or spending $60 or learning to drive a car to vote. There is a fact check I linked to in today's newsletter that's a great piece on how many people actually don't have IDs. The estimates are very hard to peg, but it's 
definitely the hundreds of thousands to millions. And there's also a Vox story I linked to that's a great roundup of studies showing voter ID laws don't really prevent fraud, but also don't cause voter suppression. So those are two things to keep in mind if you want some more info on the story, and you can check out the newsletter for that. All right, next up is our story that matters for today. Many states across the U.S. are turning to minors in an attempt to fill holes in their labor markets. In Michigan and Maine, 17-year-olds can now serve alcohol. In New Jersey, Governor Phil Murphy is allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to work 50 hours a week during the summer months, and 14- and 15-year-olds can now work 40 hours a week. Other cities are also coming up with creative solutions. In D.C., for instance, Mayor Muriel Bowser is offering police officers who want to join the force a $20,000 hiring bonus, while Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky is boosting tuition assistance for students seeking degrees that involve healthcare. Axios has the story about this. There's a link to it in today's newsletter. All right, next up is our numbers section. The number of journalists and media workers killed since 1992 across the globe is 2,161. That's according to the Committee for Protecting Journalists. The number of journalists and media workers killed globally in 2021 is 55, according to the United Nations. The fraction of those journalists killed in 2021 who died in countries where there is no armed conflict is two-thirds. The number of killings since 2006 that remain unresolved is 9 in 10. The number of journalists and media workers killed in Ukraine so far this year is 15. All right, after those numbers, we need our Have a Nice Day story, and we've got one for you. In a thrilling story for anyone who loves space and imagination, researchers say they have now found the five foundational bases of DNA and RNA in meteorites. The discovery adds to evidence that suggests life's precursors came from space, according to Science News. In April, scientists said they found the last two of the five informational units of DNA and RNA that had yet to be found in meteorite samples. That's adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, and uracil. The discovery by an international team with NASA researchers gives more evidence that chemical reactions in asteroids can make some of life's ingredients, which could have been delivered to ancient Earth by meteorite impacts or perhaps the infall of dust, NASA said. The finding doesn't provide a smoking gun as to whether life on Earth got an assist from space or came about exclusively in the prebiotic soup in the planet's infancy. But... Completing the set of nucleobases that makes up life today, in addition to other molecules found in the sample, gives scientists who are trying to understand the beginning of life more compounds to experiment with in the lab. All right, that is it for our Have a Nice Day story, and that is it for our podcast. A quick heads up, tomorrow I am going to be publishing... I think maybe a controversial piece in our newsletter on what I think should happen to the mass shooters from Uvalde and Buffalo and now Highland Park. If you're interested in that, it's going to be a newsletter that goes out to subscribers only. You have to subscribe to get it. Please go to readtangle.com slash membership. That's readtangle.com slash membership to do that. And uh, yeah, hopefully you'll see me in your inbox tomorrow. If not, we'll be right back here same time on Monday. Peace. 
Our newsletter is written by Isaac Saul, edited by Bailey Saul, Sean Brady, Ari Weitzman, and produced in conjunction with Tangle's social media manager, Magdalena Bakova, who also helped create our logo. The podcast is edited by Trevor Eichhorn, and music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. For more from Tangle, subscribe to our newsletter or check out our content archives at www.readtangle.com. Thank you.